I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichiwa Skygon, on Treaty 6 territory in Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and we find out the answers together. And this season, we're digging into questions about parks and natural spaces in and around Edmonton. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton. Oh my goodness. And that oh. is the sound of a sky full of birds. Snow geese, to be exact. Way back in 2016, the very first episode of Let's Find Out was all about a festival in a town about 45 minutes southeast of Edmonton, Tofield. That's the Snow Goose Festival. And in that episode, I set out to find out how this big festival that started in the 90s with thousands of bird watchers, bird nerds, bird enthusiasts, coming to Tofield to admire the geese migrating through the spring, became a bunch of school bus tours run by the Edmonton Nature Club. And in that episode, what we found out was that the festival was centered on this huge lake, Beaver Hill Lake, that mostly dried up a decade later. So the organizers kind of wound down the festival. And a diehard group of goose admirers planned those bus tours to catch the geese in wet farm fields instead. That first story was interesting to me because it demonstrated how quickly we can get used to big changes. We can accept new normals, something called shifting baselines. I was talking about this with Trevor, and to be honest, I feel like Edmontonians are kind of too good at accepting shifting baselines. Way too many of us shrug when a place like the Minchow Blacksmith Shop is demolished to build nothing. So imagine my surprise and delight when I found out the festival was coming back for 2023. How is that possible? What does it mean? Is Beaver Hill Lake back? Which, by the way, Beaver Hills is where we get the Amiskwichi part of the Cree name for Edmonton, Amiskwichi Wiskaigon. This lake bed was so dry, I saw cows in it last time. So dry that in some years there were grass fires there. So this episode, I took a field trip out to Towfield because I sensed this would be kind of a good news story of people who remembered the lake, remembered the celebration of birds, and wanted to breathe new life into it. The story I found was kind of more complicated than I thought. All right, let's take a trip to Towfield. It's a Saturday morning at the end of April, and I've just showed up at the Towfield Arena. There's a dog show the next building over, and it definitely feels like we're between hockey events. This is where all the info booths and registration tables are for Snow Goose Festival 2.0. I'm here pretty early for an afternoon tour booked with some friends, and I run into somebody else I know, sitting in the bleachers with this very serious-looking camera and laptop out. So I've been lucky enough to run into somebody here at the arena who I know from Dino Lab, but he's an actual paleontologist <laughs> instead of just a volunteer fossil cleaner. My name is Koi. My name is Koi Nguyen. I'm currently a master's student in the field of Curry Lab. I specialize in ceratops and dinosaurs. But I'm here for birding today. Um, so you already went on one of the tours today, hey? Yep, I went on the earliest tour of the day at 8 a.m. You had a gigantic telephoto lens on your camera. Um, so what were you able to get some good shots of? Okay, these are not too good. I'm just going to ignore them. Koi's got his laptop here at the arena, um, and he's, he's already got USB sticks out to, to start um, culling, I guess. Over here, you can clearly see the snow goose. Oh, beautiful. White birds, big black tip at the end of the wing. Oh. Wow, okay, so we've got some shots with like hundreds of birds now. Oh, yeah, this is the beginning. <laughs> when you go for snow geese chase, your typical expectation is in five digits. So you're not really in the chase until you see like 10,000 of them at least. 
uh, for for my chase, uh, according to our like biologist tour guy who has way more expertise than me, uh, we we saw around like thirty five thousand snow geese alone. Holy crap! And then you add that numbers with like the other geese in the area, like cackling geese, Canada geese, and white-fronted geese, which is also very common right now. Okay, so we're looking at some shots now of birds and in I'm fields. And a place where they actually actually landed, just grazing on the grass. Then. Just a long white line of many, many, many birds hanging out together. Yeah. After peeking through all these pictures of the koi, I was delighted to run into Vanita Eagler, who I spoke to in that very first episode. And we sat down on a bench to talk about how the heck the festival is back. Hi, uh, I'm Vanita Eagler. I'm the Recreation Facilities Coordinator for the Town of Tofield and co-chair of the Snow Goose Festival Committee. How are you doing? I am actually really well today. Yeah, no, doing well, doing well. Thank you. Yeah. So you were on uh, the very first episode of our podcast. Now I, I'm just so excited we're doing a follow-up episode because the festival is back. Festival is back. Yes, we started this a few years ago, uh, gathering some of our partners together. And uh, when COVID started, uh, we of course had to cancel. And uh, in the aftermath of that, we, you know, out of abundance of caution, we waited. So this year is first year back. So it's exciting to see the people coming out. It's uh, exciting to see the excitement of the participants. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. So the, the old festival, I think I remember there were like 5,000 people-ish that were coming out. Is that right? At the peak of the festival, actually, we were seeing numbers in the six and 7,000 that wow. were attending over a weekend. And that would have been after the 10-year cycle. So the first one, like I said, it ran, it ran 10 years. So by the, by the peak of it, we were yeah, seeing tremendous numbers, had all kinds of tours running throughout the day. Um, then it kind of, well, yeah, that one had to shut down. We had, you know, the birds, it was drought here, the lake was drying up, we weren't seeing the numbers. And so in order to provide a good experience for the participants, we just felt it wasn't, uh, yeah, good to do it that way. And so now the lake is refilling, the water in the area has been refilling. We are seeing last year, there was lots and lots of snow geese around. Um, yeah, so it's exciting to see the festival back. A little bit smaller scale than where we left it, but it's given us room to grow. Why was it important to bring the festival back? Like, you know, it's nice to have snow geese and have people wandering around, but why would it, why was it important to have the whole festival back? Well, I think the partners, when we were looking at it, it was a way to bring more um, interest in the area, bring people to Toefield. It is quite a remarkable sight if you are able to see those flocks out there. There are a lot of new birders now since the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, they've developed this bird watching skill. There's a lot of people who didn't know about the festival before. Uh, so this is new to them and they're exciting to see it. There's a lot of people who remember the original festival and really enjoyed it and have come back and, and are participating again. How does it feel for you? It's exciting for me. I, uh, I was involved with the earlier ones, although 20 years ago I was a little bit younger. I was dealing with the kids area. This is my first go at the, you know, the involvement in the overall festival itself. It's really exciting. There's a lot of moving parts to it. There's a lot of people with a lot of interest. So this one has a lot of room to grow. I'm really excited for the future. Lots of people streaming in and out here of the arena. They are. The tours are starting to come back now. So we've seen some people who've seen the geese. They're talking about it. They're excited about it. The tour guides are excited about it. What's one thing that surprised you today? 
What surprised me today? The cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like four degrees out. It, it, it was it was chilly this morning. Yeah, there's frost all over here in Toefield. But you know what? The people that were game to be here at eight o'clock, they were here bright and early. So. Another reason why I'm here is because right now we're doing a whole season about parks and natural areas in and around Edmonton, and I, I, we've been thinking about the value of parks and some of the complicated issues around them. Um, and I'm curious, like, this area is a Ramsar area, right? Like, recognized for its biodiversity? It was designated, and that is at the peak of the festival. That was one of the designations here. Um, we are still, you know, seeing a lot of birders coming out, Ramsar site or not. The Beaver Hill Bird Observatory does their uh, regular programming out here all year. They have quite a large contingent of people who come out. This is just an adjunct to that. So this is one thing, yeah, kind of bring the whole birding, you know. Uh, the birding, the migration has never stopped here. The migration carries on. Whether we see the numbers or not depends on what the uh, what the spring is like, what the moisture content is out, out there. So the birding is always going to be here, and it's birding is one of those one of those activities. Like I said, over COVID, that a lot of people have taken up. It's rather inexpensive to do. It's a night drive in the afternoon, and uh, yeah, you can see all kinds of great things. Did it require any special protection or designation to bring the lake back? Or Yeah, so the lake is fed by a couple of creeks in the area. So there isn't anything really special that we can do to monitor that. That happens whether we have wet summers, whether we get lots of snow in the, in the winter, and how the spring runoff is. If it's a quick melt in the spring, sometimes, you know, we lose a lot of water. But over the years, so the lake, it's been 20 years now since the lake was drying to its extreme, it's filling again. Mm-hmm. And that's drawing the birds back to the area. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what it is. We don't really have a whole lot of control over what the lake is doing other than Mother Nature herself. So It's interesting for me because so often we talk about parks and designation and wilderness area designation in Alberta as being essential to protect natural areas. And this is an interesting case where maybe that wasn't necessary. Well, it, it, I think it was to protect some of the birding areas around the lake at the time. Okay. So when Francis Viewpoint, when Mundair Beach area, when it was designated the Ramsar site, it was protecting those areas so that the shorebird migration, the snow goose migration, all that stuff will carry on uninterrupted. We've never ever have done a whole lot of major development out there, trying mm-hmm. to keep it very basic, very, you know, accommodating people who want to come but not disrupting the habitat out there for any of the migrating birds. Um, I think I don't see that changing in the future. I don't, you know, but the natural area on the south side of the lake where the Beaver Hill Bird Observatory is located has the designated trails and whatnot going in and that's Probably between Francis Viewpoint and the natural area, they have controlled that so that the public comes, they're walking on trails, they're going to a destination, they're not just wandering through the bush trying to find something. So some some protections are necessary maybe to limit like the impact of visitors and development? Correct, yeah, to restrict how they're coming, how many are coming, and where they're, where they're actually going to. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't have the whole naturalist background. <laughs> I'm a recreation coordinator, so uh, I do rely a lot on what I'm getting from Alberta Environment, what we're getting from Parks Canada or Parks Alberta, and, and um, you know, even, even with, uh, with Jeff. So the Jeff that Vanita told me I should speak to, if I wanted to talk to someone with more environmental science expertise about the lake coming back, that's Jeff Holroyd. He joined me in a little side room to go deep down the ecological rabbit hole here. We sat down as someone was setting up tech and chairs for a lunchtime talk about some of the year-round birds in the area. No heckling, okay? <laughs> yeah, how's the turnout been? I think it's been pretty good. The hall's pretty busy right now. I don't know how many are walking off the street and how many were pre-booked, but Benita won't, I mean, Benita won't have numbers until next week. So. Hi, my name's Jeff Holroyd. I chair the Snow Goose Festival Organizing Committee. And uh, you've been involved, at least inspiration-wise, since the very first days of the festival, hey? Uh, yeah, it was came out of a discussion with uh, our regional director at the time in about 1991, uh, Jerry McKeating, that he and I used to organize a wet waterfowl festival at Long Point in Ontario, and we should do something here. So since he was regional director, he went back to the office, called a meeting of some of our waterfowl biologists and uh, decided to turn it into a snow goose festival and Jerry Barsbergen, who's still volunteering today as a guide, was named as the lead for the Canadian Wildlife Service at the time. So uh, it was part of the recognizing this place as something special? Yeah, I mean, the spring migration of the snow geese is pretty spectacular to see thousands of birds. Uh, this morning, one of the tours, uh, one of the first tours saw 25 to 30,000 geese. And obviously, that's where we're sending uh, more of the tours. They'll pick up on where they are. So one of the spots where there were geese yesterday, they've moved. So we'll go where the geese are. We've got various spotters out there. Uh, we want folks to get a, a glimpse of the spectacular migration. There are somewhere between 7 and 10 million snow geese on the move right now, heading up uh, throughout North America, and we get a good chunk of them coming east of Toefield. Wow. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with snow geese, what are some of the things that they should know about what makes this bird cool? Um, well, they're cool partly because of their size. They're almost as big as a Canada goose that most people are familiar with. But the snow geese are pure white with black wingtips. So that when they're flying, they get this spectacular speckling of black and white as they're uh, moving across the sky. They also undergo a huge migration from the southern United States, California, northern Mexico, heading north to the west of Hudson's Bay, this population, uh, all the way through Alaska to Wrangell Island off the coast of Siberia. So some of these birds are fanning out um, in a big direction. They mate for life, but when they're young and they're looking for a mate, they find their mate in the, in the wintering grounds. So they pair up there. And then the question, of course, is if there's a male from Siberia and a female from the uh, Western Ar- Canadian Arctic, where are they going to go? They always follow the female. So they go back to an area where the female came from, and that also improves any genetic diversity that uh, might be involved. Um, so yeah. What makes this area attractive for them as part of their route? 
Well, we're at the western edge of their main migration route. There are some birds that go west of here, actually fly right over Edmonton. But basically the geese are migrating from here out to Saskatchewan and uh, even some even into Manitoba. So it's a big broad band. And Towfield is close enough to Edmonton that folks can drive out or catch a bus uh, quite easily. And then from here, with a two or three hour tour, we can take people out to find out where the geese are on the fields. The area around Towfield uh, to the south and east in Beaver County is agricultural land, so there's spilled grain. Uh, the geese is particularly like um, pea, pea fields. So wherever there's a pea field, there's spilled grain, spilled peas, and the geese can fatten up on that as they're getting ready for their next flight. Hmm. Didn't know geese liked spilled peas. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a delicacy for them. The the reason the population's doing so well is the um, production of rice in the southern U.S. So the rice didn't used to be produced there. It used to be a corn belts. Uh, with climate change and new breeds of of rice, uh, rice is now produced. Uh, those fields have spilled rice in them. So the geese are doing really well over winter, not suffering mortality, which has contributed to the geese population growing over the decades. Um, uh, maybe good context for listeners is that you are a wildlife biologist. You've worked on some pretty cool projects yourself. Yeah, I, I um, retired 10 years ago after a 36-year uh, history with the Canadian Wildlife Service centered mostly on peregrine falcons and burring owls, but lots of other critters. I actually banded my first bird as a teenager at Long Point Bird Observatory and decided shortly after that with the people that were mentoring me, I was going to get a PhD and study birds, and I'm still the teenager living his dream. So this festival... Um started in the 90s, it kind of wound down in the early 2000s when the lake disappeared. Um, why is it back now? Well, it's partly back because I think there's an eagerness to see it come back. Um, we're also being a bit more flexible in where the buses go. So this morning when we started out, the 8 o'clock bus, uh, the route that was planned had no geese on it. But the um, one of the leaders, Jerry Barsbergen, had been further east and determined that a three-hour tour could get out there, see the geese, and as a result, they saw 25 to 30,000 geese. So I think we're also being a bit more flexible in, in where we're going. Uh, it is a late spring. The geese are slow arriving, so next year the festival will be on the 27th, 28th, a few days later when hopefully uh, spring is a bit earlier and, and the geese all pile in. Um, and I've retired, and I... You know, I've got lots of things to do, but it was like if I just give it a push and form a committee, maybe we can recreate the festival uh, in a slightly different format, but with all the key components uh, that we that we had uh, in years past. That was 2019 that the re the planning to restart the festival began. Yeah, we started meeting in June of 2019. In the intervening years, the Edmonton Nature Club organized a snow goose chase and they were buses from Edmonton that could drive out further. They'd stop in Towfield to get lunch. Um, and then that didn't happen in 2019. And that's when I thought, hey, let's see if there's the interest to recreate the big public event that we used to have. Uh, and we were all set to go. And then the pandemic intervened, of course. And I remember the 
prime minister declaring the pandemic in Canada and the next day contacting the committee and saying, we're done, like we just have to wait. So now three years later, it was interesting in January, we just picked up our minutes from the March 2020 meeting and it was like, okay, where were they? And just keep going. So uh, it all worked out in the end, but we had to wait three years to, to get here. So you talked about the flexibility of where to take people being part of why it seems like logistically possible to have the festival again. What about the lake itself? What's changed? Um, Well, the lake has come back. So in the early 2000s, when the festival stopped, the lake was virtually dry. It was a giant grassland, uh, great for sprakes, pippets, and short-eared owls, but not so good for ducks and geese. Um, The lake has come back. The Beaver County in the early 2000s was also dry, so there are fewer paces for the geese to stop on their way north. And they're, they're easily able to fly long distances from day to day, so they, they figure that out. Um, and so now that there's water back, um, and there's water in the lake, but actually right now they can't use, the lake is frozen solid, and we just had such a slow uh, uh, melt and uh, cold temperatures, but they're using the smaller wetlands uh, around in Beaver County so that they're still able to, uh, willing to stop and let us see them. And then there's still spilled grain uh, in the fields, right? So there are peas and corn and other crops that they're able to eat the spilled grain. Um, why are the water levels up around here? Um, well, it, part of it is just hydrological cycles, the, whether there's more rain or less rain. There were two factors that dramatically affected Beaver Hill Lake in the last almost 10 years. One were large summer rainfall events, so big uh, storms that flooded Edmonton came further east, sat south of the lake, filled up Amos Creek and its watershed. In, in 2016 was a very notable, and Amos Creek flowed like a whitewater kayak route for almost two months as a result of that one storm. Wow. The other factor that affects us is how wet or dry the autumn is. So 2022, we had lots of rain in May and June, and then July July through October were very dry. So when the freeze comes, we've now got effectively a a frozen sponge. The ground is very dry. The snow melts in the spring and goes straight into the ground. It doesn't flow over. But in 2017 through 2021, a lot of those falls were wet. So when the snow melted, it ran off. That fills up the creeks, fills up the lake. So those there were several springs um, where the, the creeks flowed very well because there was high soil moisture, frozen ground, and that helped to fill up the lake as well. So those are the two factors. A wet fall is a good thing, right? Yeah, wet fall is a good thing. I think it's a good thing for the farmers, but it's a really good thing for the creeks and lakes for the snow to melt, run off, uh, get surface flow, and um, fill them up. So part of the reason why I'm out here is because the, the first episode that we did of this podcast was like, it's a local history podcast, and I was so curious, how did the festival become the Snow Goose Chase? But the other reason I'm out here is because we're doing a whole season about parks and natural areas in and around Edmonton, and I, I'm curious about you know what it takes to protect biodiversity, and I'm curious, like what what tools of protection, whether that's like park designation or influencing like what kind of agricultural development can come around here, what kind of tools have been necessary, if any, to bring back the conditions for the lake to be around, more water bodies to be around? 
Well, I think the, re the recovery of the lake, water coming in is the natural phenomena that I've talked about. Yeah. Um, what affects things like the water quality in the lake are the agricultural land uses, um, what pesticides or other chemicals are being washed from the farmer's fields uh, into the creeks and then into the lake. So there was a study done a few years ago of tree swallows at Beaver Lake at the Bird Observatory, and the student was looking at the um, sheen on tree swallows, the purple sheen, they have iridescence, and wanted to compare the um, quality of the sheen of tree swallows in the city, which in her experimental design would be the polluted site, and the sheen on tree swallows at Beaver Lake, which would be the natural site. In fact, she found the opposite. She found higher levels of heavy metals in the uh, tree swallows at Beaver Lake than there were in the city of Edmonton. Wow. So we haven't done any water testing, but the assumption the food of the tree swallows are coronamids, midges that come out of the water. And so the assumption is those coronamids are getting heavy metals from the water and the water's coming off the agricultural fields. So it could be that the wash from fields is putting more heavy metals into the lake, which then results in a color difference in the tree swallows. Not highly noticeable, but noticeable that she could measure it and show there was a difference. I asked Jeff what strategies would be helpful to do more to protect birds and their habitat in this region. Initially, he listed things like planting native plants in your yard or reducing your own use of plastics. But I wanted to know what collective or legislative strategies would be helpful. Well, we definitely need to talk to our politicians more and have more protected spaces. And that's not protected spaces that aren't used, but protected um, so that people can use them. So one thing I've noticed over the, the last four or five years through the pandemic is the number of visitors we're getting at the Beaver Hill Natural Area and the Blackfoot Recreation Area has increased dramatically. So I think the pandemic enforced, it forced people to stay apart, but also they wanted to get out. So they actually came to these natural spaces. And if there aren't enough natural spaces and more people are coming out, then we need more natural spaces for people to enjoy that recreation. So it's, it's good news that people are coming out. We don't want to suffocate our natural spaces by having too many people. So my conclusion is we need to have more uh, protected spaces so more people can come out and enjoy the out of doors, get that um, um, recreation of uh, enjoyment and peace of mind. This area is kind of a, a mix hey, of like provincial park, um, Ducks Unlimited designated areas. Yeah, there's a whole variety. So the Beaver Hill Biosphere, which is immediately uh, west of Beaver Hill Lake, the lake isn't part of the biosphere, although I hope it will be, includes Elk Island National Park, the Blackfoot uh, Reserve, uh, Miquelon Provincial Park, and then there's a variety of Ducks Unlimited and Alberta Conservation Association properties, the Golden Ranches being the biggest one. Uh, there are several um, natural areas, one square mile areas of native forest and wetlands that are protected. Um, so there's a, a good mosaic, which is part of the reason the biosphere was designated as a um, United Nations recognized special place. That is to say, a UNESCO biosphere. Beaver Hill Lake is still listed as a Ramsar site or a wetland of international importance. So having, I think, Good context from Jeff Holroyd and from Vanita Eagler on why the lake and the festival are back. It was my turn for a tour. My friends Brenda Anderson and Amanda Palmer met me at the arena and we hopped onto a little minibus. 
About a dozen of us were packed in, going on a walking tour around the Beaver Hill Bird Observatory, which is a neat little scientific monitoring facility pretty close to town and to Beaver Hill Lake. One of our tour guides, Jack Curry, gave us a little introduction to the lake on our way. area off the back, that is actually like just a first glimpse of the lake. Uh, we can't currently, we can barely see the lake from the Bird Observatory these days, but at one point the lake was actually all the way up to where the Bird Observatory, to where the cabins are currently standing. Um, our bus dropped us off at the edge of the farmer's property, and we set off on foot across the provincial natural area land. We chatted about Brenna's life list of birds they're hoping to see as we walked along a wetland and through a forest to the bird observatory. <laughs> Do we start then and then it's like anything we've seen since then or is it can you back? I think now-ish, but I wouldn't. I would do it for anything I see from then on. Do not, by the way, picture like a telescope pointing up at the sky. Picture a, a, a few new wooden buildings, one of which looks like a two-story house and some nets out front and a little clearing in the woods. While we were snacking and having a cup of tea, we heard that magic sound overhead we'd been waiting for all day. Hey there! Hundreds of snow geese flying by, way above the trees, and waves of Vs. We were contracted to come in right at this time. It seemed like the main stop in the tour was seeing how they do bird banding, attaching a little tag to a bird's leg to track and identify it down the road. Beaver Hill Bird Observatory's head biologist, Jane Atifi, took us inside the main building to see the demonstration. Kids squirmed up to the front as she pulled out a soft little green bag with a flappy wriggling little bird inside, and one of our guides, Matt Turnbull, joined Jane up by a little scale. Okay, Matt, have you scribed before? Uh, yes. Do you want to scribe me? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, we start with Wayne, our bird. He stops kicking, so it'll go a lot faster. So we put the bag and the bird on the scale, zero it, and then we'll take the bird out, put the bag back in, the negative weight is the weight of the bird. Jaina pulled a little downy woodpecker gently out of the bag and held her feet in one hand. And what kind of bird is that? It is a downy woodpecker. Aww. Yeah. It's so cute. Yeah, they are really cute, okay? Is it a baby? Nope, it's full grown. Wow. Oh, will she fly away if you let her go? Yep, absolutely. But I have her in what's called photographer's grip, so she's not going to fly away. Or him. She's And that doesn't hurt her, right? No. Our guide took down notes as Jana made measurements of the bird. And then, of course, came the banding part, putting a little ID tag around one of the bird's legs. So this, um, these pliers are specifically sized for this band, so I can put it over the leg and squeeze as, squeeze as tight as I want without um, hurting the leg. So it goes over the leg, and then I can squeeze down. One of these are nice and thick. So I'll just do a second here. All right. Did that hurt? No, it doesn't. And then it can move. Um, Freely up and down the leg, it can spin, it doesn't affect their flight or um... The bird was looking at me. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
The woodpecker did not seem super happy, as expressed by some squeals and flaps, but pretty soon we all went outside where Jaina released the bird with the help of someone from our group. Which was neat, but not exactly what Manda and Brenda and I were here to see. All the older birds are like, in there. Your first band, you know. Oh, it's like, look at my new bracelet. Yeah. I finally got one. Yeah. <laughs> so we did see some snow geese. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Hold this, please. I Hold this, please. should have looked more closely at what the different events were. Here. If we'd done the bus tour, we would have seen, like, snow goose, snow goose, snow goose, field of snow geese. Like, one group saw, like, 30,000 this morning. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I was opting for the, like, wandering around version. Yeah. But um, maybe the, the bus tour was more pointed with the birds. Yeah. We could definitely um, adjust our plans for next year. Yeah. I was super eager to finally get to the edge of the lake. We finally traipsed out of the forest into a meadowy clearing, and far in the distance we could see the lake shore. And maybe, maybe, some white lines of birds. But we stopped well before the lake, along a fence where Jaina gave us some context for the birds whizzing by. Oh, that's fun. It's always good when you start talking about a bird and they arrive. So, uh, yeah, most tree swallow grids will have anywhere between three to five eggs in them. Ours have six to seven, sometimes up to eight eggs in each nest. Yeah, so we're really productive, but part of that is due to the fact that we have an apocalyptic amount of mosquitoes out here. So it gets so bad, but our tree swallows love it and our bats love it. So we have healthy populations of both because of our insects. Um, and luckily our farmers to the uh, north of us are wonderful and to the west. Um, they don't use a lot of insecticides, they really work with our bird populations. They're wonderful farmers, we like them. Um, you can also see the two purple martin boxes here, which will go up next week. Uh, last year was the first year in BBO history that we actually had a successful purple martin colony. So mm. very exciting. And part of that is because of the return of the lake. So, yeah. But we had boxes up um, for a few years now, and there's a couple times we had one pair come up. They either set up a nest and laid an egg and abandoned it, or it got predated. Um, but they were unsuccessful for years. Do you ban them? They do. Yeah. So. Uh, we've had a couple pairs try and just abandon it. Last year we had nine successful nests in these, and we had over 35 purple martins here. So it was really exciting. They're such a cute, cheery, bubbly call. Um, so they're really exciting to have around here. They so hopefully they come back. got the memo about the uh, mosquitoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the lake, yeah. What about the lake makes purple martin habitat better? Uh, they like to be around water for some reason. I'm not exactly sure, but I know one thing they do is our tree swallows and our purple martins, when their chicks um, have a, a poop, they carry that fecal sac and they dump it in the water. So they like to be close to water so they can dump that. I don't know why, they'll go like, like 700 meters out to, or seven, like up to over a kilometer, almost a kilometer to drop the fecal sac in the water. Huh. Yeah, I don't know why. But yeah, so the closer the water, the happier our tree swallows and our purple martins are. So. Um, and then, yeah, this turns into uh, quite the marshland out here, so we get so many mosquitoes and dragonflies and midges, so uh, they're quite happy about that. Oh, yeah. But we do usually have a lot of um, grassland uh, sparrows out here as well in all of our willows and our grass, uh, but that will likely slowly change as we get more shorebirds and more... Uh, Tree swallow!
Yeah, and our swallow populations are down by 90%. Uh, so giving them safe places to nest and, and breed is really beneficial for them. So. Compared to what baseline? To what baseline? Like how, how long ago? In the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah, and part of it is uh, loss of habitat and part of it is insecticide use. So they're aerial insectivores, so they eat mosquitoes, uh, dragonflies, midges, and all of those have a portion of their life cycle in the water. So a lot of farmers are using an insecticide called neonicotinoids, and that runs off into the water and kills them all off at the water. So they don't emerge as adults, so our insectivores have nothing to eat. So. Do emerge as adults, and there's something called value magnification where yeah. all those neonicotinoids wind up in the bird instead from all the hundreds of bugs they eat. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, what happened with our peregrine falcons as well. They almost went extinct um, back in the 70s. There was one breeding pair left in Canada below the Rockies and east, or below the tree line east of the Rockies, and it was because of insecticide use. When did the neonicotinoids start being used? Uh, recently in the last, uh, what, decade maybe? Okay. Yeah, they're fairly new. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then also they don't bioaccumulate like, in the same way that DDT did, but they do still have some effects and primarily just the, uh, the loss of, they're really insects. effective. They kill insects. Yeah. That's what the birds eat. Yeah. So. yeah. So I guess, less of a good news story than I hoped. But very cool that Beaver Hill Lake is back, and the festival. You know, in her book Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the importance of having ritual and ceremony linked to natural cycles to build a better relationship with the species around us, with the planet around us. But learning about how badly some of the year-round birds are suffering from neonicotinoid pesticides is pretty rough. Prairie lakes, you know, they're pretty sensitive to little shifts in precipitation, it turns out. A big rain at the right time of year, or the wrong time of year, can make a big difference. And because of our burning of fossil fuels, climate change is already making weather events in our region more intense and less predictable. As I'm recording this, there's a fire ban in Edmonton because it's dry, it's extremely hot for the first week of May, and there are multiple wildfires just west of the city. It is great. Heartening. Lovely to see a ritual returning, celebrating bird migration as this hopeful sign of spring. But as a society, how seriously are we celebrating the cycle of nature if we're simultaneously endangering this habitat? I don't know. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative that's doing fascinating, curiosity-driven, thoughtful reporting in our city. If you want to support Let's Find Out, become a Taproot member. For just 10 bucks a month or $100 a year, you can help ensure everyone continues to have free access to Let's Find Out and the other Taproot podcasts like Bloom and Speaking Municipally, plus the rest of Taproot's coverage of city council, food, arts, tech, and so on. Learn more at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. This episode was produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to this month's guest, Koi Nguyen, 
Benita Eagler, Jeff Holroyd, Brene Anderson, Manda Palmer, Jack Curry, Jane Atifi, and Matt Turnbull. Original music by the preternaturally lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>